0: This week on the science of politics, white identity and immigration backlash. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Racial change is making some Americans fear the decline of white majorities, with important implications from the rise of Donald Trump to increasingly salient immigration. We know that negative views of racial minorities play a key political role, but what about positive feelings toward white identity? Is America replaying the ethnic conflicts that are dividing Europe? This week, I talked to Ashley Jardina of Duke about her new Cambridge book, White Identity Politics. She finds that white identity and consciousness drove opposition to Obama and support for Trump even beyond other racial attitudes. It also increases support for social programs benefiting whites. Second, I talked to Eric Kaufman of Birkbeck College about his new book, White Shift. He finds that the impending end of white majorities across Western countries is increasing support for far-right alternatives, with nativists finding an outlet for the views that were forbidden to express by rising progressive norms. Both Jardina and Kaufman are focusing on identity as the key conflict in our politics. Jardina says objections to racial change are not only anti-minority, but pro-white.
1: Over the past two to three decades, America has become far more racially and ethnically diverse. And part of that's because of increased immigration to the U.S. and part of that's because of differences in birth rates across different racial and ethnic groups. And one thing as a country we've been talking about is how are white people in the U.S. reacting to these changes? How do they feel about things like immigration, their numerical decline, the election of the first non-white, the first black president? And one obvious answer is that some whites are reacting with a great deal of hostility and hostility that's motivated by their dislike of or their negative attitudes toward people of color. So in other words, many whites are upset by the changes we observed in the US over the past 20 or 30 years because they're prejudiced or they're resentful toward racial and ethnic minorities. But I'm, in my book, I argue that there's a second phenomenon happening. There's a second thing going on. And that's that it's perhaps as equally as troubling as racial prejudice, but it's different in nature. And it's that some whites are reacting negatively to these changes because they feel a sense of attachment or identification with their racial group with being white. And they're worried about their group status and about its ability to maintain power to hold on to privileges, really in the midst of a country that's becoming rapidly diverse. And so these whites don't necessarily actively dislike people of color, certainly plenty of them do, but not all of them, And they're, uh, but they're not eager for the country to become more diverse. They're not eager for non-whites to become a greater share of the population or for them to achieve greater political, economic, social equality, because they think that when people of color do this, that it comes at the expense of their own group's power. And so whites who feel this way tend to share a number of identifiable political views. They're opposed to immigration. They think that immigration is bad for the nation. And they're worried about the country's changing ethnic composition. And they also support certain social welfare policies that they think will help their group. Um, They like Social Security. They're opposed to policies that are linked with globalization, like free trade. And they were far less likely to vote for Barack Obama, and they were significantly more supportive of Donald Trump and whose campaign rhetoric, things like Make America Great Again, clearly appealed to whites who feel this way, to their desire to maintain a particular image of the nation. And that's one where white people maintain their social and economic and political power.
0: And Kaufman sees cross-national identity polarization, highlighted by the UK's Brexit vote.
2: One of the key arguments really is that uh, it's about identity and not the economy. I mean, that's one of the sort of findings that keeps reappearing in the data is that identity threat from decline, but in particular, the pace of change tends to sort of concentrate minds on that identity and security, and that that's ultimately what underlies uh, right-wing populism. Not left-wing populism, but right-wing populism. And so I'm quite skeptical of the kind of left-behind thesis. I'm also sort of skeptical of the rural-urban type argument, because I think once you actually compare apples to apples. So white working class voters in uh, London, for example, behave, uh, are as likely to have voted leave as, as white working class voters in the north of England in rural areas. So I think this is very much down to uh, not rural, urban, and uh, not structural forces as much as these identity dynamics, which are linked more to psychological uh, orientations and dispositions uh, such as openness, authoritarianism, status quo conservatism. So that that literature and political psychology has been quite influential uh, in my thinking. And, and just by way of illustration, if you look at the if the Brexit vote in twenty five. Percent of two person couple households in England and Wales, there was a split on that vote. It just shows you the kind of micro level, which I think aligns well with those psychological theses.
0: Jardina and Kaufman both drew from their personal experiences and past research.
1: I grew up in the South. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. That inspired in me an interest in Southern identity. And Richmond's an interesting place. It's the former capital of the Confederacy, the sort of vestiges of the Civil War, and just sort of conversations about race and southernness and Southern identity and what that means, are actually just part of the local discourse rather frequently. And so I went to college and then to graduate school thinking a lot about Southern identity and, and what that is and what it might mean. And not surprisingly, by thinking about Southern identity, I thought a lot about whiteness and the interplay between this geographic identity and racial identity. The second reason is that I was in graduate school at the University of Michigan, studying with some of the best and most important scholars of race and white racial attitudes in the world, and I think one of the things we're trained to do in graduate school is to poke at the work of those who came before us and sort of rethink the boundaries of the theories that they propose. So here I was, steeped in the work of people who have thought a lot about immigration and white racial attitudes and racial resentment and racial identities, and I was working with people like Ted Brader and Vincent Hutchings and Nick Valentino and, of course, Donald Kinder and I was falling in the footsteps of people like Kara Wong. And I'm thinking about Southern identities and racial identities and racial attitudes. And I started wondering why is it that we focus so much on racial identities and solidarities among people of color, but not among white people? So part of the answer is that some of the work that people before me had done had been done under the umbrella of symbolic racism and racial resentment. And it suggested that whites just don't think about their race in this way, sort of as the dominant group, whites have the privilege of taking their race for granted. Phrasing that people use sometimes is that just as fish don't see water, whites don't see race. But I started asking and thinking, well, maybe they're wrong. And I started asking, well, and if white people do think about their race this way, under what conditions might they be doing that? Because it certainly seems to me that some white people, at least in the South, were thinking about their race that way. So it was sort of the confluence of those two things happening.
2: I was born abroad in Hong Kong and and lived in Tokyo for quite a number of years when I was young. And so the idea of nation, it it became more salient and real in the sense that you'll go to a... I went to a school which was very international, and so you're more aware of of, uh, nation as an idea. And then growing up in Vancouver, uh, Canada, where... On the one hand, I was a bit different because I have a, a, a multiracial background and most of my, about 80% of my classmates were of, of kind of British background. So that, on the one hand, being aware of ethnic difference and then also living in a city that was undergoing uh, quite rapid ethnic change, not so much where I lived, but, but certainly towards uh, in other parts of Vancouver with a, a large increase in the Chinese uh, community. So that was also part of the environment personally. I mean, in terms of academically, I've been interested in these sorts of themes really since the beginning. So my master's and and doctoral work was all on immigration and national identity, the confluence of those two concepts um, as they played out in North America. And so my first book on the rise and fall of Anglo-America was really more of a historical sociology of the decline of the Anglo-Protestant ethnic majority in the U.S. through the 20th century and and sort of interested in that issue. And really the the question that number of us were really asking in 2004 when the book came out was much more why this dog hasn't barked yet <laughs> um, you know people like Samuel Huntington or Carol Swain or you know so so that was really the interesting thing was how in the US uh, this hadn't yet emerged as a major issue of course it is now so with the Trump and Brexit votes of course that sort of just galvanized it but I've been doing quite a bit of work Uh, Looking at uh, attitudes to immigration, for example, in Britain, beginning in sort of 2013-14, that period. So it was kind of a natural progression.
0: They came to quite different normative conclusions on white identity, however. Jardina sees it as inextricably linked to defending America's racial hierarchy
1: in-group attitudes and out-group attitudes are independent and that they're distinct and that you can display in-group favoritism without necessarily displaying out-group animosity. But the point that I want to make that is an important takeaway is that when we're talking about this, not just in sort of these abstract psychological terms, we're thinking about the real consequences of that with respect to race in the United States. One thing I like to explain is that Just because white identity isn't the same as racial prejudice doesn't mean that it nevertheless doesn't contribute to a system of racism, it does. And so the fact that some whites might not dislike people of color, but nevertheless want to maintain their power and privileges, well, the consequence of that is the reinforcement of a racial hierarchy in which which whites are at the top and have this disproportionate share of power and resources and other groups are at the bottom.
0: And Kaufman sees it both as an inevitable reaction to social change and one that can be resolved through assimilation.
2: Really, the book White Shift has two meanings. White, the term White Shift it means first the decline of ethnic majorities, white majorities in Western countries, which I'm arguing is is having important ramifications on our politics, particularly with regard to populism and polarization. And the second meaning is a more long term one, uh, referring to how white majorities, in my view, will, through intermarriage, uh, voluntary assimilation, become mixed-race majorities, but will tend to select and look back towards European roots, especially in Europe. So those are the two long-term meanings of white shift.
0: Let's dig into each project. Jardina found new ways to think about and measure white identity and consciousness.
1: So I think about white identity in the way that a lot of social psychologists think about identities. It's just a psychological attachment to your group. And one of the most straightforward ways that I get at this is I ask people a single survey measure a single survey question, which is how important is being white to your identity? In an ideal world, we would measure it with three survey items, ones that ask people how important is their identity, how proud they are to be white, and how much they feel like they have in common with other white people. But single measure does pretty well when you have that, um, and you only have that on a survey. And it is available on the American National Election Study, and it's been available on every ANES since 2012. So, identity is different than consciousness, and I'm not the first person to make this argument. This this concept of consciousness is one that I attribute to Pat Gern and to um, Arthur Gern and, and some other social psychologists who started thinking a lot about this in the 1970s and 1980s. But the, the difference between the two is that consciousness entails both this sense of identification, but also a set of very specific beliefs about your group and how that group should behave. So it's identification plus the belief that your group should work collectively, should work politically to organize around its interests. And usually part of those interests entails the belief that your group status is somehow not where you want it to be or that it's in jeopardy by some outgroup. So... To get at this among whites, I ask them not just the identity questions, but I also ask them to what extent do they think that it's likely that employers are not hiring white people because they're hiring minorities instead, and then also whether they think that whites should work together to change laws that they think are unfair to whites.
0: She says it's quite different from racial resentment, but thinks both matter.
1: The theory of racial resentment argues that You get your racial attitudes, and they look a particular way. So racial resentment is this belief that Blacks do not subscribe to traditional American values associated with the Protestant work ethic, coupled with the sort of feelings of anti-Black affect. And the architects of racial resentment argue that people are socialized to adopt those particular attitudes, that you get them from the media, from your parents, from your peers. And there's a whole another set of work in social psychology, which focuses on groups and group interests and what happens when you feel like an attachment to a group and you feel like that group is somehow friend. And so that's the world that I'm trying to take us into and and to work in. And as I mentioned before, the difference is that racial resentment is very much an out-group attitude. You can... Hold a sense of racial resentment without feeling any identification with your in-group and vice versa, actually. So that's the sort of conceptual difference there. Now, the practical difference is that they have different predictive power. So there are some things that white identity is associated with, like for example, attitudes toward Social Security and attitudes toward Medicare, which are policies that have historically been associated with benefiting whites. And there are some things that racial resentment is really predictive of that white is unrelated to. So for example, we know that racial resentment does a really good job of predicting attitudes toward welfare and social welfare programs that are traditionally associated with benefiting blacks and other people of color in the United States. So part of what's interesting and what's going on today, and part of what I'm trying to demonstrate is that there are some policies and political preferences where you've got both things being activated at the same time, particularly and potentially capturing different sets of people. So today, when we think about race and racial attitudes, part of what we're talking about is certainly racial resentments. When we think about things like support for Trump, for example. It's clear that people who are more racially prejudiced or more racially um, resentful, they support Donald Trump. But so do the subset of white identifiers, uh, people who are worried about their group and its status. So you've got these two forces at play.
0: Jardina finds white identity is much more widespread than avowed white nationalism.
1: White identity is found among a much wider swath of white Americans. I find that about 30 to 40% of whites in the U.S., possess some sense of identification with their racial group. And most of those people would absolutely reject any association with the KKK, even though they might hold to some extent some of the same policy preferences. They don't see themselves as having this attachment to these groups. And the other thing I would say is that the difference between a lot of people on who are high on white identity and a lot of people who are part of these white nationalist groups is that People who identify with white nationalism, they're high on both racial prejudice and white identity. They score very high on the extreme ends of both of those measures and possess both of those attitudes. And that's not true of a lot of sort of everyday Americans who have this sense of racial identity. A lot of them score sort of in the middle or the low end of our measures of racial prejudice and racial resentment.
0: Rather than deny racial difference, white identifiers recognize privilege and want it maintained.
1: Most white identifiers recognize that their group has some uh, degree of privilege. And as you mentioned, most of them are not interested in relinquishing it. They they recognize that it would be worse for them, like that their life outcomes would be different if they were to have been born as a, a person of color. Um, and yet, This isn't this sort of progressive identification that a lot of social psychologists would talk about in the 80s and 90s when they were talking about whiteness or even what a lot of academics think about when they think about whiteness or white identity or white privilege. These whites very much want to maintain the privileges that they they feel that they have as a group.
0: Jardina finds that white identity predicts support for entitlement programs, but does not independently predict attitudes toward welfare or affirmative action.
1: So one reason we find that white identity is associated or predictive of things like support for Social Security and for Medicare is that these policies have been traditionally associated with whiteness. I'm not the first person to make this argument. Nick Winner at UVA has an entire book on this. It's amazing and fantastic. People should check it out. But he makes the argument that Because Social Security has been traditionally framed by elites in opposition to welfare. So, welfare has been historically framed as a policy that is associated with blacks, it's associated with this idea that. Blacks aren't working hard with these erroneous and disparaging stereotypes about laziness, about people taking advantage of the system, right? We all know or are familiar with the welfare queen stereotype. So welfare has been framed this way. But Social Security has been framed in opposition to welfare as a policy that is for people who are working. It's a benefit for hard work. And so Nick Winner's argument is that therefore, you know, it's been um, in the minds of people linked to whiteness and Medicare has been very similarly framed. What we don't find is that white identity isn't strongly predictive of attitudes toward welfare. And I'm going to, I want to hold on and talk about affirmative action in a second, because I think that's the one that trips people up a lot. But in some ways, it's not surprising to me that we don't find a relationship between welfare and white identity. And one is that racial resentment is so powerfully linked to attitudes towards welfare that it's hard to find a relationship between attitudes towards welfare and much of, of anything else. But it's not just about of predictive power. It's because the nature of racial resentment like the 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 whole theory and the framework and the the measure essentially ask about sort of deservingness and beliefs about structural inequality and these differences between blacks and whites one way of thinking about it is that the language of of welfare is almost embedded in this racial resentment measure. I think the other thing, too, is that if you think about it, politicians don't tend to frame welfare policies as policies that are harming whites. They tend to frame them as policies where Blacks are taking advantage of the system, or taking advantage of things that they they haven't earned. And so I think part of it is that most whites aren't don't see welfare as something that harms them, but rather it's just something that benefits a, a different group, um, a group who d- perhaps doesn't deserve the benefits that they have. Um, that's that's sort of the troubling. Uh, plenty of scholarship has shown that, that that's the, the framework and the framing of welfare. Affirmative action is interesting, right? Because a lot of people assume that. One of the major frames of, of affirmative action is that, in fact, people of color are getting a, a spot at a company or a spot at a college at the expense of white people. But what I find in, in my work is that that's not the first frame, it seems, that comes to mind when you ask people their opinions about affirmative action. Rather, they're thinking more about this idea that people are, are getting something that they didn't earn or they're taking advantage of a system, it's not until you start to remind white people or prompt them to think about affirmative action as a policy that might hurt white people that you find any relationship between white identity and affirmative action. But for the most part, affirmative action is very firmly associated with racial resentment. And so just suggest that these are two independent constructs that can be activated differently by politicians and they are different psychological processes that can have separate political consequences.
0: She also says it's part of the broader racial realignment beyond dislike for African-Americans from George Wallace and Richard Nixon to Pat Buchanan and Donald Trump.
1: mean, we often think about, and rightly so, we think about a lot of the campaign rhetoric that was happening in the wake of the civil rights movement in the 1960s and the 1970s. And we certainly know that George Wallace and then following in his footsteps, Richard Nixon basically attempted to appeal successfully to Southern whites' racial animosities. But for the most part, that story has been rooted in this idea that they were that these politicians were mostly appealing to whites' dislike for people of color. And if what we take to understand white identity as is in part a reaction to feelings of a loss of power or loss of status or loss of dominance, well, for many whites in the United States during the Civil Rights Movement, and we could think of other historical periods in which this might have been true as well, um, surely that It seems to me that a loss of power and status were also part uh, of what was going on. And, you know, George Wallace, you know, is notorious for his anti-civil rights positions, certainly for race baiting. But even if you go back and look at some of the rhetoric that Wallace used, it's actually pretty... familiar to the way a lot of politicians today have been talking about demographic change. You know, Wallace was talking about how it's a changing world. And I think part of what he meant, right, is that the power and status of different racial groups were potentially shifting or a threat of shifting. And so I think for a lot of whites, this wasn't just rhetoric that appealed to their racial animosities, but to their concern about their place in the world. And so... Wallace arguably, well, Goldwater arguably began (laughs) that sort of campaign. But unfortunately, public opinion data weren't available for me to go back and look at at, uh, the relationship between white in-group attitudes and attitudes towards Goldwater. But I can look at Wallace and I can look at uh, Nixon and other presidential candidates. And what I find is that Whites who felt more warmly toward white people using this feeling thermometer measure where whites are asked to rate how warm or cold they feel toward other whites on a scale ranging from zero to 100, with 100 being more warm feelings. I find that that's indeed significantly associated with attitudes, support for George Wallace and support for Nixon, but it's not predictive of attitudes toward other uh, politicians during the same time period. So what that suggests is that Wallace and Nixon were able to uniquely activate this sense of identification, or at least these positive affective feelings toward one's group. And by the same thing with Pat Buchanan, which is not surprising, Pat Buchanan and Donald Trump are very similar candidates. The difference is that Pat Buchanan certainly ran on an anti-immigration platform, but he did at a time when immigration arguably wasn't as salient of an issue uh, in the United States. We hadn't really seen the huge effects of um, and the huge demographic changes that eventually we were going to observe. Nixon sort of came in the midst of or in the beginnings of big changes in immigration.
0: White identity was always important, but it has eclipsed ethnic identities like Irish and Italian.
1: A lot of prominent sociologists studied ethnic identity in the 70s and the 1980s, but that worked really waned in the uh, early 1990s, in part because the same people studying ethnic identity, uh, people like Mary Waters and Richard Alba, concluded that ethnic identity really wasn't that important to Americans by the time we sort of hit the 1990s. And people were still proud of their ethnic identity, but it wasn't sort of central to the way they were thinking about their lives. A lot of people had assimilated by that point to sort of this general white european american society and to the extent that ethnic identity was important to people it wasn't in a way that was sort of a politically organizing force anymore you know we don't really talk today about the irish vote or the italian american vote i mean potentially in, in some enclaves, and some cities, that matters in local elections, but certainly not at the national level. Today, for the most part, most of those identities are not at all politically consequential, and they're not politically consequential for a sizable enough percentage of Americans that it's going to sort of show up as, as meaningful for us.
0: Jardina says it's not just a new form of racism, but it has been activated by similar historical events.
1: I don't think that it's part of the way that racial attitudes have transformed over time. The argument that I make is that white identity's relevance to politics is likely episodic. It depends on certain conditions in the political environment, making whites both more aware of their racial group and sort of feeling like their racial group and its status is somehow threatened. So if you think about American history over a long period of time, for a lot of periods, white dominance goes relatively unchallenged. But then you have these major events like massive waves of immigration that are happening at the turn of the century and um, big shifts in demographics in the early 1900s, right? Then you've got the civil rights movement and You've got the massive demographic change that's happening in the late 1990s and early 2000s, coupled with the election of Obama. These are periods of time in which white status and it, their, sort of, their power is potentially being threatened. And so my argument is that it's, at those peri- it's during those periods of time in which we're likely to see not just racial hostility as part of our story, but also white identity.
0: And high white identifiers were twice as likely to support Trump, but not other Republicans, even though Trump extends a pattern from Obama.
1: White identity is a very powerful predictor of support for Donald Trump. So people who are high on white identity were at least twice, twice as likely to support Donald Trump as people who are low on white identity. And that's even after accounting for these racial outgroup attitudes like racial resentment. A lot of people today are sort of talking about Donald Trump as this candidate who uniquely activated white identity. And to some extent that's true. So what's interesting about Donald Trump is that if you look at the relationship between white identity and support for other political candidates in 2016 presidential race, whether that's on the Democratic side or the Republican side, Trump is the only candidate where you observe a significant and positive relationship between white identity and Trump support. So it's not just any Republican candidate, as some people might believe, um, who has the ability to activate this identity just by way of their partisanship. But if you went back in time and you looked before Donald Trump entered the stage, it's quite clear that people didn't just oppose Barack Obama because of their racial alchemy attitudes or their racial animus. Um, White identity was also strongly linked to opposition to Obama in 2012. So whites who were high in white identity were twice as likely to vote for Mitt Romney as they were to vote for Barack Obama compared to whites who were low on racial identity. So this was clearly a force at play in the political environment before Trump entered the scene.
0: Kaufman finds similar patterns globally. He says white identity politics usually arise in response to quick demographic change, which increases the salience of issues like immigration.
2: If you look at, for example, I did a paper where I looked at support for the UK Independence Party at the ward level, but also using individual level data and also attitudes to immigration in Britain. And you could see locally where areas that had an increase in ethnic minority share in the between the 2001 and 2011 censuses tended to show an increased support for uh, UKIP, for the British National Party earlier and also more opposition to immigration. But on the other hand, areas that had an established longstanding minority population tend to have have reduced opposition to immigration. So you had this difference between established levels and sudden change. The sudden change then Uh, Matthew Goodwin and I did a a meta-analysis of uh, almost 200 papers on opposition to immigration and populist right support that was published in Social Science Research a couple of years ago or maybe a year ago, where one of the most consistent findings was that Increases really over time seem to predict heightened threat, whether that's expressed as opposition to immigration or heightened populist right support. But I think more than the local level, it, what's important is is the national level, the imagined community, if you like, not as much the, the local level, which I think doesn't account for most of what we see. Most of what's going on, it doesn't matter really where you live; it's how you perceive the national, as refracted through the media. So. A paper came out by James Dennison and Andrew Geddes at the European University Institute shows that in nine out of 10 West European countries, net migration between 2005 and 2016 tracks uh, an increased salience of immigration, and, and that is also tracks the, the populist uh, vote. And that's really the key relationship that I observe at the national level, which is it's not so much that attitudes to immigration shift as numbers increase. So in Europe, numbers start to go up in 2013 significantly, peaking in 2015 with the migrant crisis. What we see is not that people who wanted immigration to stay the same suddenly say immigration should be reduced, but it's the majority in these societies that wants a reduction. Instead of immigration being their number five issue after healthcare or the economy, it's up to number one or two. And that's for, you know, 30% of the population, let's say. As the numbers go up, the salience, and in Britain, this is a 70 to 80% correlation, um, looking at the smoothed trend lines between numbers and salience. And as a larger share of the population say immigration is their number one issue. That is what creates the opportunity for the populist right uh, to emerge. So there is a correlation with that line.
0: In many political systems, mainstream party competition on these issues narrowed, opening an anti-immigration vacuum for the far right.
2: That this is becoming a more important discourse uh, on the left, the the, the the class-based left is giving way more to the culture-based, identity-based left with race being a key uh, touchstone. And I think what you see, uh, one of the arguments I make in the book is that this sort of narrows the uh, policy space for mainstream parties to be able to take on something like immigration, so if that's associated with with racism or it has a whiff of uh, something that's just not properly handled by mainstream parties, then I think that means that uh, a vacuum opens up really so it's a bit like I use the example of of a bootlegger where uh, if the mainstream outlets aren't willing to supply liquor, then a black market will pop up and the bootleggers will service that category of demand. So I think that these, these norms operate, and in a number of cases, I think in Sweden and Germany, and also in the United States, I think that these limits really on the debate allow space for populists to emerge. So there is a kind of a black market po- uh, political entrepreneur phenomenon, which I talk about
0: in the book. Kaufman says the U.S. pattern is somewhat different, but America is Europeanizing.
2: Anti-immigration sentiment in the U.S. is somewhat lower than in, in Western Europe. And if we look historically, the first thing to, to remember is that actually the proportion foreign born in almost all West European countries in, say, 1900 was sort of like 1% to 2%, pretty small, pretty insignificant. and you could only find analogies to what happened in the US or in Canada and Australia. You could really only see that in a few localized spots. And where you do have sort of large-scale immigration of a group that is culturally distinct from the local ethnic majority, I think we do see something very similar to to what we're seeing today, which is why I would be more surprised in a way if there wasn't some kind of a response to uh, the unprecedented foreign-born share and, and immigration rates that we see, and so, for example, one of the historical examples that that I look at are the is the arrival of Irish Catholics into central Scotland, particularly the Greater Glasgow area, and this is late nineteenth into the first half of the twentieth century. And what you see is quite powerful Scottish Protestant populist movements winning up to a third of the Protestant vote in in. The central belt in Scotland, and I think that's a uh, that phenomenon has very many, has echoes in the U.S. with what with what occurred um, with large scale immigration there between the 1890s and the 1920s, where we see a similar mobilization, strong echo, you know, strong anti-Catholic themes. And I think there's a a relationship there in the sense that, and a number of historians have written about this, in in the sense that you're introducing a significant shift, which is uh, Catholicism in a predominantly Protestant society, as well as the magnitude of the change. Uh, And that leads to a politics which in some ways is not unlike that of today. So in Scotland, the Conservative Party actually had a lot of working class support back then, because it wasn't just about Income. It was also a cultural issue, which was the Protestant-Catholic question. Uh, If we then look at the United States, you know, if we look more recently, what's different about America, I think, is this this link between numbers and salience doesn't appear. At least it doesn't appear initially in the sort of 70s and 80s when you had large numbers of… Both legal and illegal immigrants coming into to the U.S. Immigration remains low salience, and it's not. Re- it doesn't really start to break through until we get to the mid two thousands. I mean, there is some blips that start to occur, starting in the nineties, but really outside of California and Proposition one eighty seven, it's not really till we get to the mid two thousands that we start to see it in America. And I think there are a number of reasons that I give in the book. It, it suggests that supply side factors are important. So when you're in a two-party system and the Republicans are concentrating on. Neoconservatism, which is about foreign policy hawkishness, or religious conservatism, or or, or it's a Cold War setting, 9-11. These sorts of uh, more foreign policy issues play to a more statist kind of missionary nationalism, which is going to take the focus for conservative voters for authoritarian voters uh, sort of towards external threats or towards secularism rather than towards internal threats, if you want, from immigration and from cultural change. So I think there was a kind of a delayed response in the U.S. to this demographic shifting, and it's only really in the, starting in the mid-2000s, you start to see more people saying that immigration is their most important issue. And now amongst, and and really what's critical is from about mid-2014, with the, the arrival of the Central American refugee mothers and children, Amongst Republicans, immigration is the most important issue for over 10, up to 15 or 20 percent consistently month in, month out from that period. And it's never dropped below that. That's really unprecedented. It's now up to almost 40 percent of Trump voters who say immigration is the most important issue. So that's really quite a – that brings the U.S. into line very much with, with Britain and Europe. And, and I think that's an important shift.
0: He says the lack of supply explains why right populism hasn't come to English Canada, and we can now know it can come anywhere.
2: I think the supply side has a role to play, as I mentioned in the book, with particularly the American case. There's no question that that, that is important. It's also the case that it's, it's a question of, of resonance with existing collective memories. So... English Canada is very unique in that it doesn't really have a collective memory because of the the, the, the end of the British Empire destroyed the, uh, the the Britannic loyalist nationalism, which was really the had been a central component of English Canadian identity since the loyalists during the American Revolution. So it was exceptionally fertile terrain, really, for left modernism to move in and, and become more established. So it's simply a higher hurdle, but. Uh, and if we look at Quebec, for example, which has elected an anti-immigration populist party, I think clearly it follows the European model. But in, in English Canada, it's only just emerging. Uh, do I think it could emerge? I do think it, it can emerge. It's, and so if you look at the new populist uh, or People's Party of, of Maxime Bernier, for example, there was a by-election, I think, in in the Vancouver area where one of the candidates seems to have uh, reached about 11% in the polls. And, and I wouldn't be, you know, over a number of cycles, I wouldn't be surprised to see a populist party emerging. I mean, one of the things that uh, we've seen now is people said that right-wing populism could never happen in Britain because of the proportional representation system or the U.S. again, because um, it doesn't didn't have a proportional representation system. People said the same about Germany because of the Nazi legacy. They said the same about Sweden. They said the same about Spain, which now has Vox, of course. And so what we're seeing really is that all of these exceptionalisms have been falling one by one. And so I wouldn't think English Canada is is necessarily going to escape it either.
0: But Kaufman sees a broader role for the left. He says by switching from class to identity and institutionalizing a previously fringe ideology, they set the ground for backlash.
2: And I think it's important to understand that what I call left modernism, which is really uh, you know, some would call it the cultural left or the new left, this involves a, a turn of the left from uh, more class-based materialist concerns to more culture-based concerns around subaltern disadvantaged groups. So th- this has a long history, and in a way, it's a fusion of two ideas, one of which is to do with uh, the left and this idea of, of um, raising the weak and weakening the strong to achieve equality, but also what I call modernism, what Daniel Bell in his book, The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, uh, pointed to, which was an anti-traditionalist response. And that's connected to cosmopolitanism. And it goes back really to utopian socialism, but but, but especially to the bohemianism of the mid to late 19th century and into the early 20th century. And this is where in the United States, for example, around the young intellectuals in Greenwich Village, 1912 to 17, which was a real efflorescence of modernism. And Randolph Bourne, who is one of the pioneers of multiculturalism, emerged out of that bohemian milieu. And his argument really was very much around uh, that WASP Americans really needed to slough off what he saw as a confining puritanical inheritance. And of course with the Volstead Act prohibiting the sale of alcohol and and closing down saloons. This had a more contemporary resonance for him, but he sort of contrasted what he saw as this stifling and confining and parochial uh, Anglo-Protestant culture with the expressive and wonderful immigrant cultures. It could be Jews or it could be black jazz. And I think this begins uh, to develop a trope around the idea that members of the ethnic majority should reject their own culture and move in a cosmopolitan direction, but members of minority groups should treasure and hang on to their cultures. So so Born was very opposed to minorities assimilating. and And I think that's sort of the beginning. And I think there's an important contradiction there because it's on the one hand espousing a sort of individualism for the members of the ethnic majority and on the other hand a strong uh, conservatism or communitarianism for minorities. And those contradictions I think are, are, are emerging more forcefully now because really this left modernism was Confined to small circles of intellectuals, the young intellectuals, the New York intellectuals, or in Britain, the Bloomsbury set. These were small groups that knew each other, that socialized with each other, that read each other's work. And then you get to the 1960s, and this all, as, as Bell describes, this all goes onto a mass scale with the expansion of the university sector, of the television media. And and so what I think has happened is much more of a, a scaling up, a quantification. It's, it's quantity, not quality. I'm not sure the ideas are radically new that we see. It's much more that that, that these have scaled up and can now dominate in certain circles, for example, universities... Uh, tech companies, etc., that that they are then then become powerful enough to actually set the cultural tone. Whereas when Bourne was writing in 1916, this was very much a rebellious thing to sort of, uh, you know, to 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 denigrate white Protestant or the the majority culture was a rebellious thing. But then it becomes, I think, as we get into the 60s, and and it's no longer about Anglo-Protestants but about whites and about essentially not being anti-white, but 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 looking down perhaps on that as a sort of square and, and not very interesting inheritance uh, compared to the interesting minority cultures, that this becomes a trope, which I think has at times become quite virulent. And I think this is where Trump was able to capitalize on some of what was perceived perhaps as a sort of anti-white sentiment. And so if you look at the American National Election Study, the pilot survey, which was uh, the pilot study which was done during the Republican primaries, um, you can see that uh, variables like white guilt, opposition to political correctness, belief that whites are being discriminated against all correlate quite well with warmth towards Trump. And and in experiments uh, that have been done, Ashley Jardina, who you're going to interview, has done some of these experiments where when you prime political correctness uh, or you prime the idea that uh, certain policies are racist, that tends to actually backfire and lead to increased support amongst some conservative voters. So that's that's some of the evidence that we see really that particularly in America, I haven't seen the relationship as strongly in the UK data or the European data, but there was a backfiring effect of invoking the this anti-racist norm, which according to a psychologist Nick Haslam, th- that, that if you consider uh, that the racist norm has expanded its meaning to encompass, for example, discussions of reducing immigration, if that's held to be uh, racist as well, the overuse perhaps or the expanded meaning of and scope of this term uh, then can lead to a blowback. And I, and that's sort of one of the things that we see, I think, particularly in the American case, is that um, perhaps the overuse of this Term uh, allowed uh, uh, it allowed an idiom it allowed a symbol for for Trump to to to, to use that and prey on that. Again, in Britain, and Canada, we don't see partisanship lining up with views on political correctness in in quite the same way. There's just high widespread opposition to political correctness on the left, on the right in in Canada and Britain. In the U.S., it's more partisan, and I think that suggests it's been politicized to a greater extent.
0: Because it's an ideology, he says, it can be shared by minority conservatives and opposed by white liberals.
2: So I think a key thing to recognize, say, in the American case is that this is a clash over racial ideology and not race. It's not like Northern Ireland or Sri Lanka, where you have two ethnic groups or racial groups pitted against one each one another. I would argue that, you know, what's distinct here is you've got significant numbers of uh, minorities who are conservative on these issues, and you've got significant number of whites who are liberal. So on the conservative side, I mean, I just uh, there are a number of data points, but one of the interesting findings was from a a, a study which took place, uh, a poll which took place soon after the Charlottesville riots, where. Asian and Hispanic Trump voters were as likely as white Trump voters to to agree with statements such as, "It's important to preserve and protect the European Christian heritage of the United States." That whites are under attack in the U.S. today. Majorities agreeing with these statements, and also in just some of the smaller M-Turk samples that I've looked at, Hispanic and Asian Trump voters are are expressing a greater degree of sadness at, at the decline of the white majority uh, compared to. Particularly, white Democrats, and so yeah, and, and I explain this really as a as a result of something I call uh, ethno-traditional nationalism. So this is there are really two concepts in the book. One is white majorities. Now, of course, a minority can't be a member of the white majority, but the second has to do with the idea of the nation, which is the ter- the wider territorial political entity, and part of national identity for many people is the ethnic composition. Of the society. So let's say a white majority with minority groups. That's distinctive, or it's distinct from ethnic nationalism. So the term, the term civic or ethnic nationalism, which I think are too crude and emerged to apply to a different context of Europe during the 20th century. Ethnic nationalism suggests that only members of the majority can be members of the nation. Ethno-traditional nationalism, which is a new term I'm trying to introduce, I think characterizes a lot of uh, populist voters, which is that they they are not saying that members who are people who are not members of the ethnic majority cannot be members of the nation. Very few people agree with with that statement, but they would like to slow down the rate of change to the ethnic matrix that they know in the, in the country. And, a lot, and so significant numbers of ethnic minorities can be attached to, let's say, American identity, but their picture of, of the America they know would encompass this kind of ethnic matrix, which is why they then can be drawn into uh, that kind of conservative politics.
0: Kaufman says we should allow a moderate form of white identity expression because the costs of suppressing it are too great.
2: Rightfully so. I think people are look to history and they see that, you know, white identity in the Southern U.S. was bound up with, with uh, you know, hateful attitudes to African-Americans. And I think that's right. And the question I, I would ask is, you know, to, to what extent do we allow uh, groups to reform? So, we wouldn't say you can't express Christianity because Christianity has a, a deep-rooted, a history of anti-Semitism or, or Protestantism has a deep-rooted anti-Catholicism. We can see that in American history really up until even the election of John F. Kennedy. I, don't, I think saying something is in the DNA of, of an identity is, is problematic. So in Germany, you know, pop singers wouldn't sing in German because this was held to be shameful. I think that's actually quite a, a, a negative and, and not a very healthy way to proceed. I think rather I would like to see, you know, these groups Remember what people did in their name and but on the other hand, I think also that these groups should be allowed to move on, just as Christians and and Protestants have moved on. I think we also have to just thinking about the risks and dangers here, rather than comparing the risks of allowing the expression of a moderate form of majority identity, which, by the way, is open to interracial marriage, which is what I talk about in the book. Right. You know, If you suppress that, uh, yeah, which I think really is to some extent the situation that we're in now, we have to compare the risks of that suppression not with a a relative period of calm, which is what we're in now, but with what the future may bring. So there are risks that come with allowing for the expression, and there are risks that come with continued uh, suppression or the attempt to, to, to make it a toxic thing. Which I, and I actually think in the long term, the attempt to toxify is going to be more dangerous.
0: Although Jardina sees many of the same signs as Kaufman, she finds it dangerous to accept organizing around white identity.
1: Part of what Eric's is arguing is that in some ways white identity is a natural consequence of diversification and sort of just a pluralistic society and, and the sort of threat that, that people have that people feel, which is sort of a simi- certainly a similar argument to the, the one that I'm making. But for him it's like, well once there's greater levels of diversity and whites feel like they need to organize around their group to protect their group, well that's sort of a reasonable path for them. To take. And I think the difference is that my argument is very much situated in this idea that we live in a country and certainly in a world where there is marked inequality across racial groups. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea of a racial hierarchy where whites are at the top, where they have the disproportionate share. Of social and economic and political power. And part of what they're trying to do is maintain that power. And so arguably, even though white identity isn't the same as racism in terms of racial prejudice, it does nevertheless help to maintain a system of racism in which whites get to maintain the lion's share of those resources at the expense of other groups. Um, so I think that's you know part of where we part ways um, is sort of acknowledging the degree to which racial inequality is real and the degree to which that has real meaningful consequences for other racial groups in the United States.
0: Many white identifiers in the US do see minority celebrations and ask why they can't celebrate their group heritage.
1: Many white identifiers would like to see a White History Month. If not a White History Month, they at least believe that they ought to be able to organize around their racial group in the way that they see people of color organizing around their racial group. So is this closeted racism? Well, Actually, yes. To some extent, among some people, surely it is closeted racism. And I say this because the people who are most likely to actually go out and propose um, a whites-only organization or to really strongly advocate for a White History Month tend to be members of these white nationalist groups. But... That being said, if you just ask people like, well, would they support this? Do they think that whites ought to have this racial group? If you just you know, ask a nationally representative sample of white Americans, you do find still that a sizable percentage of, of whites think that they ought to be able to do this. And I think part of that is, is certainly not because they associate with these white nationalist organizations, but it's because there is in the United States... to some extent, a willful ignorance, but an ignorance among whites about structural and racial inequality. So if you were to ask a sizable percentage of white Americans, why shouldn't we have a White History Month? It would be hard for them to answer that question and to really have a fully articulated, thoughtful answer to that question, which certainly is a problem for how we think and understand race and racial inequality in the United States. For a lot of whites, they simply think, well, if people of color get to do it, well, why can't we do it? Um, And I think that's part of the danger of white identity politics here is that whites are starting to sort of co-opt the language and the strategies that they observe other racial groups using to organize politically and to gain political power. And in a country where they're starting to feel like their own power is waning.
0: Jardina says it's better to avoid encouraging it, but it's hard for politicians.
1: Well, I think part of what's worrisome is in some ways, this is a cat that has been let out of the bag. And so one of the arguments that I make is that to the extent that we could shove it back in the bag, that might be the appropriate route to take. Because Essentially, what we now have happening is that there are these two forces in American politics that are super effective. And certainly, there's plenty of anecdotal evidence that we're observing various similar phenomena in in Western Europe in response to massive immigration. And What that means is that you've got politicians who are able to appeal to whites, not just by appealing to their racial hostilities, but also more subtly and perhaps more covertly um, and perhaps in a way that feels more palatable. Right. By saying like, oh, well, we just want to protect your group or we just want to we just want to benefit your group. We just want to make America great again. Right. That, That sounds, I think, to a lot of people a lot more reasonable or palatable than you know, some of the more explicit disparaging rhetoric that politicians often use. Um, but nevertheless, it's still troubling and insidious. And so one thing that politicians can do is to decide that this isn't the road that they're going to take. Now, of course, you know, <laughs> That's a that's a trick a tricky request, one that certainly I don't feel particularly optimistic about, right? Because we know certainly from the success of Donald Trump's campaign that appealing to white identity is an effective political strategy, especially for Republicans who are far less worried about alienating racial and ethnic minorities as part of their base. So I think that we're going to see politicians continue to do this in the very short term and potentially um, for many years to come as the country does become increasingly diverse.
0: But despite fears from the right and some opposition on the left, Kaufman says voluntary assimilation is as strong as ever and continuing at a fast pace.
2: Underlying numbers, the intermarriage numbers, if, if anything, are showing an increase, and so which I think is sort of the litmus test of assimilation. Now, if you go back to the the left modernist idea of multiculturalism, which Randolph Bourne, um, uh, you know, broached first in 1916, we can see why. I mean, he was very opposed to minorities assimilating because he felt that they were just assimilating to a depraved and very boring sort of mass culture, and that was to be abhorred. And so I think this is partly behind some of the opposition on the left. And also, there has, of course, been episodes of high-pressure state uh, assimilation, the 100% Americanism, or uh, majorization in Hungary, or Russification. So, so, So clearly, that's a negative. But in terms of voluntary assimilation i mean i think we have a lot of evidence that it's it's going along at a healthy clip on the right i think what you see i mean it depends i mean if we're talking about the alt right far right of course they are racially exclusivists so they're not going to like interracial marriage but i think there's also you know, a broader trend on the right towards just worrying about loss of cultural distinct, ethnic distinctiveness. And I think one of the messages really of white shift is that you can, yes, you will have interracial marriage, but that doesn't necessarily mean that ethnic majorities are going to shrink and and go away. It means that because really ethnicity is about subjective myths of origin uh, and the cultural markers that are used can shift. They don't have to be about skin color. They could be about, uh, you know, dress and culture and perhaps first name, etc. And so those those can survive um, interracial marriage at a large scale. And I think that's a sort of more positive way in which ethnic majorities in in Europe and the U.S. can see a path. Uh, you know that, that assimilation can happen and that a lot of the a lot of their fears are, are not necessarily going to materialize and a lot of their culture can be conserved the collective memories can be conserved um, so I think and, and, and equally I think on the left, there will be plenty of people who, who identify with, with, their, you know, with a cosmopolitan background as well. So I don't think that, th- that this mixing necessarily means the end of diversity either. But ideally, we would have both sides able to, to look at this mixing in a positive way. <laughs> that, that is the ideal, really.
0: But he says polarization will proceed as parties divide on a globalist-nationalist dimension.
2: One of the things I argue in the book is regardless of whether – Left modernism wins or populism wins at the ballot box. We're going to see, in my view, polarization. So, if, for example, the Democrats win in the United States, then you will have uh, the right wing media, and you will you will have sort of non-metropolitan interests represented in the Senate and governor's mansions kind of resisting the federal government in some way. And and I think what this stems from, uh, you know, or or if the populace win, then you'll have resistance on the other side as exists now. Um, I think this stems from a sort of interlocking set of, of factors. The first is that Due to psychological makeup, people respond to immigration in different ways, to, to ethnic change in different ways. So that's the first source of, of division, if you like. That that's that's leading to the shift from left-right to a more globalist, nationalist cultural, political axis. But then you, in addition, have layered on top of that the progressive response to the populace or to, to the anti-immigration politics, which is to say that's distasteful, that violates our social norms. And and you see a huge divide on this question. I mean, for example, I did some surveys where we asked about, you know, do you think a person, a white a woman who, who wants less immigration uh, to help maintain her group share is A, racist or B, acting in a racially self-interested manner, which is racist. And you see that sort of white liberals, it's sort of you know, 80, 90% say it's racist. White Trump voters, conservatives, it's sort of 5, 10%. It's a massive difference. This is, this is not just about people's reception of immigration and difference, but it's also about their views on the moral acceptability of this kind of politics of restriction. Um, and I think for many progressives, that's, you know, ipso facto anathema. It, it crosses. A normative line, it breaks a taboo. And so that value difference gets layered in on top of just the difference to the reception of immigration.
0: Jardina agrees identity politics are not going away, and she thinks they're important for minority groups.
1: Our politics has always been identity politics, right? If you go back to one of the great tomes in political science, right, the American voter some of their biggest findings were about how people organize themselves into groups and it's how you feel about your own group and how you feel about other groups in society that gets you into politics and helps you understand the political world. Some people would argue this is just sort of a natural consequence of being humans, that we're going to see the world via our groups. Now, the other thing that I think is problematic about this attack on identity politics is that it fails to recognize that identity politics are the way in which subordinated or marginalized groups in American society have been able to achieve political power and to work toward greater levels of political equality. We wouldn't have had the civil rights movement without identity politics. And we still live in a world in which there is very market inequality across and among different groups in our society. And so identity politics isn't just a strategy that politicians use to try to win votes. It's a really important political strategy that affects the lives and the the resources that groups in society uh, have and are able to uh, obtain and attempt to obtain. And so I think that there's a reasonable critique of identity politics in that it, for one, can lead to greater you know social distance, and it can certainly lead to things like the sort of development of white identity politics. But it's a fine line here to walk between this sort of this blanket criticism of identity politics versus sort of recognizing that there is a place for identity politics in our society. And to some extent, part of the benefits of identity politics is sort of work toward living in a more egalitarian society.
0: Kaufman says the conservative backlash is also likely to continue, as other politicians learn from Trump's success.
2: The combination of, of the declining foreign policy threats due to, you know, we're, we're already past the Iraq War, we're, we're not in a Cold War phase, and with the decline of religion amongst the white working class in America is another factor. Both of which I think uh, would reduce the energy behind the kinds of right-wing politics that existed in the George Bush era, for example. And now I think the immigration discourse has become much more entrenched in the conservative media. And I don't... And so, so the supply side has now long flipped into place in a way it hadn't. And because of the transformational nature of these changes, I, I guess my sort of assumption here is that the U.S. will move in that European direction. And, you know, I think other politicians will have taken note of, of how well this worked for Trump. But but not only that, I mean, there's now a transatlantic right-wing discourse and transatlantic media and, and events that occur in Europe are transmitted to, to the United States and vice versa, whether that be on to do with the excesses of social justice movement or whether it's to do with, with Islam and and, and You know, there's a whole anti, a whole Islamophobic uh, discourse as well on on the right of the spectrum. But but I think there's a a mutual influence there, and and I think the discourse has changed. And I wouldn't. So that's on again, it's supply side. But I think with that in place, and just looking at the value publics, there's a lot of very similar patterns um, in terms of correlations between status quo conservatism or authoritarian values and support for these parties running perhaps through uh, attitudes to immigration. And so it's hard for me to envision a return to the status quo ante.
0: But Jardina says there are some signs pointing in the opposite direction. She's now investigating why Trump causes white identity to decline.
1: There was a notable and marked drop in levels of white identity immediately after the 2016 election. And so, If you look at news coverage leading up to the 2016 election, you look at conversations that were happening in national discourse and media coverage of this term white identity, not surprisingly, there was a giant spike in November of 2016. And at the same time, um, I also observed in public opinion data about a 10 percentage point drop in the number of whites who... We're willing to indicate that their racial identity is really important to them. And that's a drop that I hadn't observed in the, you know, over the past seven years that I have been collecting public opinion data on white identity. And so I'm working with colleagues, Nathan Calmo um, and Kim Gross to try to figure out who abandoned the, their racial identity. And, and why. So that's sort of next on the, the agenda for, for white identity. But I, I'm also just interested more broadly in the nature of racial attitudes. And so I'm working on a second book project with Spencer Piston, and we're interested in looking at the prevalence of scientific racism, racism that looks more like old-fashioned racism among whites in the United States and linking that to criminal justice policy. So that's next on the agenda.
0: There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available biweekly from the Niskanen Center and on iTunes. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Ashley Jardina and Eric Kaufman for joining me. Please check out their books, White Identity Politics and White Shift, and then listen in next time.